Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. So we were going to call this an abduction roundtable, but then we have four people participating, including David and myself. So by adding Dr. David Jacobs, and we'll call him Dr. David to separate him from just plain David David and Bud Hopkins, we decided to call this the square table. That's right. Four sides. I think that makes perfect sense. We're, we're sitting down at a diner. It could almost be the beginning of a Quentin Tarantino film. We're sitting at a diner, except we will not talk about Madonna. We'll talk <laughs> about other things, other, other more interesting topics. We will. And actually, obviously, given that we have Dr. David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins together at a square table, and I think this is a fairly rare thing to have these two gentlemen in a conversation with each other as well as with other people, I'd like to ask our two guests uh, right off the bat, and I'll I'll direct this to Dr. David, uh, where you think the current state of our understanding of... And let's, let's step back, because both of you are involved specifically with the abduction uh, scenario, but in terms of our current understanding and handle on the UFO topic in general, do you think we're at a point where we know anything more than what we knew, let's say, 25, 30 years ago? Well, if we separate out abductions from UFOs, the answer is we are approximately at the state we were in the mid to late 1970s with sightings. In other words, sighting investigation is extremely important, but there's, there's only a certain amount that you can learn from studying sightings. And by the mid to late 1970s, we had learned, in my opinion, uh, almost everything that could be learned from it, from them. And so every other uh, additional sighting that's investigated is primarily for validation that, yes, this phenomenon is still going on. Yes, it was seen by credible people. Yes, it was unusual. It, it, it performed these maneuvers and, and, and all that sort of thing validating basically what has gone on before, but our knowledge of the phenomenon itself I don't think has increased much since that time. Now, would you even say that in light of, for example, uh, what appears to be a definite trend change in terms of some of the morphology issues? I know that uh, in the past 20 years there seems to be an uptick in terms of the number of triangular crafts sighted. Not that they weren't being sighted previously, but uh, I think it's probably accurate to say that in some areas of the world, there seems to have been a shift away from disc-shaped craft towards uh, these rectangular craft. And there's been a whole range of sizes, uh, you know, in terms of, for example, uh, some of the credible reports from the infamous Phoenix Lights episode, which, as we've talked about on the show, is really two separate episodes, an earlier sighting of, a, of an, an enormous triangular craft about a mile long, um, versus the lights later on that, that are definitely problematic. But um, that enormous triangular craft, that seems like it's a relatively recent kind of craft shape. So yeah, uh, I, I think that that's true. And so what you have is a variation in shape. But the question then is, what does that mean? And 
and uh, you might talk about its effect on the environment. You might talk about its effect on people. You might talk about its effects on animals or or machines and and, and, and electrical, mechanical instruments and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might talk about how high it was above the ground. But the only difference between that and the other sighting is the fact that it's triangular and that it's huge. Although we, as you said, we have we did have those uh, prior to the mid 1970s as well. But the question is, what do we learn from that? And the and the answer is. Well, not a whole lot, uh, other than its its shape. So, so like I said, there's not a lot more that we can learn. Uh, although that's, I think that's a significant thing, uh, but but the meaning of it is 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 not really known. All right, looking at this, does this indicate that maybe the UFO knots, whatever they are, are engaged in various changes in the hardware they send here, or is it maybe a different race exploring our planet? Right, we can't know that um, uh, if they're not abducting people. In other words, what Bud and I know is is, the, is whoever is abducting people, and what we see is a consistent group of people who are doing it. We don't know if there are other groups visiting us who are not abducting people and who people don't have sort of face-to-face relationships with. Uh, so that we we don't know, and I don't know how we can know that unless we begin people begin to report occupants that are significantly different than the occupants that have been reported over the years and so forth. And and so far as 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 far as I know, and Bud, maybe you know differently, uh, uh, the, uh, that has not happened. Well, you know, just uh, to add to what uh, you were saying, of course, absolutely concur about the fact that. There isn't any big substantive change in information from 30 years ago to now uh, about the phenomenon apart from what we know uh, from the abduction reports. The difference, of course, is uh, absolutely uh, incredibly important because uh, all of these earlier reports and the ongoing sightings are people standing somewhere or sitting somewhere looking out and seeing something in the backyard or above the house or next to the wing of the plane or whatever. But with the abduction phenomenon, we're getting all our information from people who are inside one of these things, face-to-face with uh, what seems to be the uh, the occupants, the crew, whatever you want to call them, and undergoing uh, some very particular procedures, one might say, quasi-medical in nature or reproductive. And uh, we have a huge amount of information based on that. Uh, the, the first thing, of course, is that uh, we didn't have, with just the sighting reports from all these years, we didn't have a motive for their arrival, uh, if that's what it is, uh, if that's a, a, a sort of extraterrestrial explanation they're here for some reason. Um, there were theories that they're here to uh, deal with our involvement with uh, nuclear energy or one thing or another. Those reports were um, very pro- uh, prevalent during the early days of the Cold War when we were very focused on who knew what about atomic uh, weaponry and so on. But we didn't really have any kind of motive. Uh, we just made guesses. They're exploring, they're looking around. But with the uh, abduction phenomenon, once that unfolded in the 60s and into the 70s, we gathered information in such extraordinary amounts that we suddenly had uh, a motive, a, a, a modus operandi. We had masses of physical evidence that we didn't have before. 
uh, we had all kinds of stuff uh, being reported by people who had been inside firsthand. So at that point, I think our uh, information jumped enormously. Now, with that in mind, I know both of you, both being primarily English-speaking, have been uh, primarily focused on American cases. And, and you'll stop me if I'm, I'm being incorrect in that presumption, but in, in, in the work that you've both done, have you attempted to do an analysis of this, of this on, a, on a global scale and to find similarities and differences? And the reason I ask this is that recently I've been reading a book uh, by Bob Pratt about the UFO scenario in Brazil. A number of the stories that, uh, that Pratt reports in, that, in the book I'm reading really have a very violent sort of set of overtones that are, are I don't think, really well replicated for example, in the United States, there seems to be kind of a, a harsh edge to them. So in the work that you've both done, have you seen, have you looked at global occurrences? Have you done the sampling at, on a larger scale than, let's say, the United States? And have you learned anything if you've done that? Dr. Uh, Dave. Okay, well, actually, I was going to throw this one on the bud because uh, he, uh, uh, not very long ago, uh, uh, did a session with a woman in Turkey and uh, in, in Istanbul, I guess it was. And... I've worked with a woman who was born in uh, in in Pakistan, and I've worked. I'm working with people from uh, in England and 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 Ireland, and and uh, I've worked with a woman who's born in Romania, and and so forth. And and I've talked with abduction researchers in Chile and in Brazil as well, and and in France. And from what I can tell, in those countries, uh, and I'm, I'm including Brazil here, it's pretty much the same. Now. With Bob Pratt, he he wasn't really looking at the abduction phenomenon. He was looking at at sightings and and the effects on people and all that. And I, I don't know exactly how much we should we should go along with that without further investigation uh, by other researchers. Uh, I know that uh, the researchers that, that who I've talked with uh, have not uncovered that kind of uh, violent strain that you that you discussed. However, we we don't really know because. There are so few investigators, and there are so many countries, and uh, we, we can't really tell whether there's a qualitative difference in abduction material around the world depending on national boundaries. My best guess is there's not from just preliminary uh, reports. And um, But most other countries don't have a kind of the sophistication of of knowledge that 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 we have in the United States about how to do hypnosis and how to how to investigate these cases and all that, so so we're we're sort of waiting for that to develop and see what happens and when they when they come up with 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 case uh, with books about cases and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things uh, uh, that they mentioned is I think absolutely true. You only hear about what you hear about. I mean, it's a truism, obviously, but uh, if you have a country which has no openness to the subject, let's say Iran right now, and uh, no investigators that we know of, and nobody daring to report such a thing, uh, you might say, well, nothing's happening in Iran. Nothing's going on. It's, and what I, the analogy I've made before is uh, with something like uh, the sexual abuse that uh, 
turned up a decade or so back in uh, in the United States, especially in in Boston. And at first it said, well, well, this is just a minor thing, and it doesn't happen other places. And ultimately, the more this uh, subject has been explored, the more we have run into cases of sexual abuse around the world uh, and be reported in very much the same way. And so what we mistook for there being no such incidents uh, turned out to be there's no such reports because uh, there was nobody to report this kind of thing to. And we have a huge problem there, as as Dave said. Uh, now, the thing about uh, about Brazil is that um, although I'm not uh, that familiar with, with uh, Bob Pratt's work, I've read some of it, but uh, there seemed to be, in an odd way, uh, incidents which took place more or less in more backward or primitive areas. Now, I don't know whether that has anything to do with with the nature of the report or the nature of the incident or the nature of the UFO occupants or not. As Dave said, what we need is, of course, a worldwide network of uh, people who are used to uh, a kind of a sophisticated attitude towards the whole subject. But there's no doubt. I mean, the people that I've worked with uh, from all over the place, uh, I have abductions from Tokyo and from Rome and Paris and Israel. Uh, uh, one of the interesting things was in, in two different cases that happened in Israel, the two people who did not know one, one another were children when we were looking at this, I mean, we were looking into childhood experiences. They both thought that when they saw these strange little figures approaching, that they were from the Mossad, the uh, Secret Service, the, the kind of highly fabled uh, Israeli um uh, investigative arm, uh, and they thought that their strange behavior was due to uh, the fact that they were they were trained that way. Ultimately, they, these uh, Mossad agents was that and took them out of the uh, apartments and into the craft for a traditional kind of abductions. But they both came up with the same uh, short-term explanation of what was happening to them. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked? 
We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Dr. David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins. We are participating in an abduction square table. Indeed. David, David, do you want to pick up before I continue? Well, I thought you were going to have a question, Gene. I will, but, you know, I wanted to go into something that kind of segues away from this for a moment. Dr. David. As you yes, know, you had an email interview with UFO researcher Lynn Marzulli for one of his books, I think, called Alien Abductions. He has strong opinions about the abduction scenario. Of course, his opinion is, of course, is that the UFO pilots, they're all manifestations of the devil, the fallen angels working for the devil. So it's <laughs> the God versus the devil great war, which is played out with UFOs. Now, he made a comment that... If you utter the name of the Lord, the Lord being Jesus or any alternative, that halts an impending abduction. If you utter the name of Jesus, it stops. But if you say the name God, if you say the word God, that that doesn't work. Well, that's what I was saying. Jesus or one of the various interpretations of Jesus. But the point not being God, but Jesus or a variation of Jesus, it will stop the process. So, Dr. David Jacobs, have you ever, in all the abduction research you've done, seen reports that uttering any kind of word, including get the hell out of here, will halt the abduction in its tracks? Well, I have a, a complicated answer to that, and uh, the answer is no. <laughs> oh, gee, that is so complicated. I'll have to write that down just a minute here. I'll write in my right hand. I'm normally right with my left hand, but let me kind of segue. Well, uh, let me let me expand a little bit on the no. Uh, obviously, if, if somebody could say any magic incantation, whether it's religious or, or, or something mystical or, or, or spiritual or whatever it is, uh, we wouldn't have an abduction phenomenon. Uh, it would spread like wildfire, and that would be the end of it. But we have had people who have tried everything under the sun to try to stop abductions, which includes prayer, and I've worked with an, uh, uh, several uh, ministers, uh, and uh, that's the first thing they try, of course, and includes uh, bargaining and negotiations and saying, get the hell out of here, and all that sort of thing, and, and everything else under the sun, and, and people who have slept with guns under their pillows and knives and baseball bats and all that, and uh, we have found absolutely nothing uh, seems to stop the phenomenon. Now the question is then, why would anybody think that? And the problem here is that it is, what you're looking at is a clandestine, a secretive phenomenon. And the way that secrecy is first imposed is primarily through memory blockage, so that people do not know what has happened to them. And they can interpret some flash images of that they might have had as perhaps religious in nature or or a, a, a visitation by a deceased relative or another ghost of some sort or, or whatever they do. And 
But what they get sometimes is just a little flash of a memory. And sometimes they'll, they'll and here's an actual case that, that I investigated, a woman told me that um, she saw these beings uh, coming into her bedroom, and she grabbed her pillow from her bed, and she threw the, threw the pillow at them, and that scared them, and they left, and, and she stopped the abduction. And when we actually looked at that uh, and investigated it, what had happened was these beings came into her room, took her out, and did a whole full abduction scenario, brought her back, put her back in her bed, and then she sort of woke up just a few seconds before she was supposed to, saw them there, misinterpreted them as coming in when they were near the window, threw the pillow at them, and they left as they were actually in the process of doing in the first place. And her interpretation was, I stopped an abduction by, by throwing a pillow at them. So pillows and don't work. But having right. a 44 Magnum doesn't do a thing, even if you point it at them. Or has anyone actually tried to take their rifle, their gun, point it at the beings and say, "Get the hell out of here, or I'm going to shoot you right through the head"? None of that works. Yeah, I have never had somebody who got that far in the game to do that. In fact, if they have a gun under their pillow, and I have had people have done that. They don't remember it. They're not even aware of it. It's not in their consciousness when the abduction events starts. And so uh, it, it, nothing works that has to do with some sort of mental activity on the part of the abductee. Yeah, now, one, one thing to follow up, Dave, on, on uh, the religious issue is uh, a number of years ago, I had a very interesting case with a family uh, who had uh, several young children and the wife, I believe, uh, had all been abducted. They were all actually born again Christians, very religious, and they remembered a great deal of the experience uh, consciously. And the central figure for me was uh, a little girl who was uh, about 13, an extremely, extremely religious. And she remembered the whole thing unfolding. And, she, and, and incidentally, I was dealing with them about three or four days after the incident. But she was describing being taken out of a room. And she was, you know, quite terrified and so forth. And when she's on the table and various uh, procedures are being done, she was praying intensely for Jesus to save her and to get her away from them and so forth. And... What ha happened in, in afterwards, when, of course, there was no uh, salvation <laughs> taking place, her faith was an extremely dangerous, fragile position. And I found myself, as someone who d does not share her faith, trying to reinstate the faith that she had apparently temporarily lost because it meant so much to her. And I thought this is... Uh, I felt very, very sorry for her. And I said, I said, now when you were on the table and you were praying, uh, for Jesus to get you away from there and save you, and he didn't, I said, have you ever in your life prayed to him for something that a wish or a need or whatever that he did not grant? And she said, yes, I have. And I said, well, maybe this is another, such case like that and maybe for some reason he felt that he was unable or unwilling to help you with this and i i went through all of her objections to try to reinstate her religious beliefs which were completely shattered by the abduction experience so i don't know uh how anybody can <laughs> spend the time writing a book about how something like this works when we have so many cases 
when it is employed and nothing happens. How many people do you estimate, and we'll start with Bud and go on to Dr. David in a moment, how many people do you guys estimate have actually been abducted? But, well, that, that's, that's what you mean, worldwide or nationally? Or, let, let's go worldwide on this planet. Well, worldwide is, of course, much harder to estimate because we don't have much to go to go on, you know. We don't have any kind of uh, basic statistics uh, to judge, we can, we can guess. But in the United States, at least, when we did the Roper survey, and we had uh, we asked people to um, uh, answer a series of questions, of which five were the kinds of questions that indicate uh, a possible abduction. We got a sizable percentage, which was extremely disturbing, answered uh, yes to having had the, these experiences, which were so consistent with abduction. For instance, seeing unusual lights or balls of light in their homes or outside, um, waking up with, with uh, scars on their bodies that weren't there when they went to bed with no idea how it happened, blood, bloodless and so forth. And uh, we ended up, as we looked through the whole thing, with an estimate, just a guess, an estimate of, uh, I believe, 2.5%. Wasn't that right, Dave? Well, we were. you have to say also that we were... Uh extraordinarily conservative to say the least in yeah. coming up with that about about two percent poll yeah yeah then the numbers were were ridiculously high and uh and after we sort of of became very very conservative about them we came up with two percent around that now that was of course uh a startling and, and upsetting figure to come up with. First of all, it provided ammunition to the debunkers because they say, well, that's impossible. How, how many, how could that be? Or just, uh, obviously if we had a smaller number, it would have been a more believable scenario, but we were stuck with this. The second thing, which was the most disturbing is if it is this widespread or even in the neighborhood of this, then we have a huge number of abductions going on in the country. And who wants to think that that's, uh, that's what we're facing? I mean, at the time when we did that survey, uh, Dave and I were essentially the, the carrying the, the brunt of the investigation. So a few other people, too. John Mack was coming into it, and uh, there, were, there were other people. But, uh, uh, yeah, but the point is that if you think on one hand as is, is is a handful, four or five people looking into this, and it means not only just looking into it and gathering information, but also uh, doing a, a kind of de facto therapy, helping these people deal with these experiences. So there's like four or five people on one side, and the other side, let's say there are two million. The whole thing becomes extraordinarily depressing on a, just a human level. And I think on a, on a level uh, emotionally for both Dave and me and, and the others. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. And there's something else involved with this uh, as well, and that is that uh, at 2%, which was, I cannot stress a, a, enough, a conservative number, you're dealing with about 6 million people in the United States who might have had abduction experiences. And, well, just to reaffirm what you were saying, there are so few people who can deal with this. And it's so it's, it's a difficult subject to look into. There, there is a learning curve to do it. And that learning curve is uh, is something that a lot of people don't want to do. Now, in order to look into this, we knew, I think, even, well, let me just say that, a lot of UFO researchers objected to the poll. 
they they thought that the numbers were too high, that it wasn't done enough depth. There was all sorts of, of, of objections to it. The poll has been replicated, incidentally, uh, twice since then uh, with basically the same numbers, uh, maybe a little bit less, but, but we were very conservative, you have to remember. But the fact is, though, that it's, I think it's, it's a very indi interesting indication of, of how many people are out there because it was an experiential poll as opposed to an opinion poll. And not only that, but both Bud and I have received thousands and thousands and thousands of emails and letters from people all around the country, if not the world, talking about their abduction experiences. So even without the poll, we know that there is a tremendous number of people out there who've had abductions because the ones who email us or who write to us are only the tip of the iceberg, obviously. And I don't know what each email or each letter represents, but it's got to represent a significant number of people who didn't email us or write us. The numbers are, are, are very high no matter how you look at them. This is staggering. Business travel is a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. It's also staggering to be able to have this square table featuring Dr. David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins as we explore the meaning and ramifications of the abduction scenario. A question that occurs to me offhand, because someone thinks they have been abducted doesn't mean they have been abducted. So even if it was 2%, how do we even begin to comprehend how many of those would stand up to investigation? Well, uh, just, just I'll, I'll take it uh, on this. Of course, the poll did not mention UFO abductions, and therefore we, we deliberately did not want to include anything that would alert someone taking the poll to the idea that this had to do with UFO abduction experiences. Uh -huh. It was called unusual experiences, unusual personal experiences. And we had a couple of, of uh, just uh, camouflage questions like, uh, do you believe you've ever seen a ghost? You know, which is kind of tr trying to throw the thing psychologically into the area of, of uh, the occult in general. We had uh, one trick question where I made up a word, and the question that we used was, does the word trondant have any particular uh, hidden or, or significant meaning for you? That was a word I made up. And uh, we got fewer than 1% said yes on that, and we threw them out instantly. So the point is, it was a careful poll. Uh, where we were not getting people who uh, were being asked that you do think you've had a brush experience. Uh, that would be, of course, a, a wholly different 
story. But uh, I think the poll, uh, within its limits, was uh, an extremely conservative and accurate poll. Uh, we also had uh, a, a huge number. I think they mentioned 6,000 uh, people took the poll over a period of months. And this was, incidentally, a poll administered face-to-face. Uh, -face. We used the Roper uh, company because they do face-to-face, -face, you know, at the door, at the front door, polling rather than telephone stuff, where I felt, which Gallup does, that um, people answering the phone could kind of fool around a little bit on, with some of these questions, uh, and they're a little more likely to be forthright and honest uh, if, if they're dealing with uh, an inquisitor at the door. Well, gentlemen, I, I need to ask a question, though. I think a lot of our listeners are probably thinking right now, which is that w when you have those types of questions, what's your thought about the idea that if somebody says they might have seen a ghost, maybe, and they say yes, maybe they're recounting an experience of actually seeing something that would fall into the category of non-corporal entity of some sort that we don't know what they are, but are you are you at that point then taking those people who have had a ghost sighting and saying, okay, that was actually definitely a screen memory for an abduction? Because it seems to no, me no, that statistically uh, that would throw you off, right? It was just very, very quickly. Uh, we yeah. did not count that question in our tallies. Uh, it oh. wasn't something we were concerned about. Uh, we had our basic five questions. Okay. Uh -huh. that, that were really uh, symptomatic of the abduction phenomenon. And a couple of, of extraneous questions like that, we didn't even count in in any way, yes or no. All right. Okay. I misunderstood that then. Because, you know, when, and, and I think Gene was sort of intimating this as well, when you have X number of people, for example, contacting you, and you two gentlemen are the sort of the point people that people are going to seek out when they think they've had this kind of an experience, what is your own margin of error, if you would? I mean, what methods do you deploy to taking someone who's coming to you and then figuring out what is the, the possibility or the likelihood that they're describing an actual sort of an anomalous abduction scenario versus wishful thinking? Do you see what I'm asking? David, why don't, why don't you answer that one? I'm, I'm curious about that. Well, At, the likelihood of, of those people actually seeing me is, is yeah. going to be small because they, I put them through a sort of route that they, they have to go through. They have to first answer, uh, fill out a questionnaire, uh, mm -hmm. with, which has about 20, 24 questions on it. And, uh, which gives me a pretty good idea of what has happened that's unusual in their life. If they're, if they've had abduction experiences, they've lived in a, in a kind of bizarre world where they've had all sorts of unusual experiences that they've sort of slotted into either, uh, religious visitations or traveling on the astral plane or seeing a ghost or whatever it is. If a person just comes to me and says, well, I saw a ghost once, that, that would not be a candidate for investigation, uh, in, in, for the abduction. Uh, phenomenon, but if they have a whole sort of series of events over the course of their life, where they they sort of live in a bizarre world, and they say yes to some of the key indicator questions on my uh, questionnaire, then then that might be a candidate for investigation. Now, you know, you said how many people you asked the question before, how many people out of the two percent might actually be abductees, and there says, well, we don't really know. Uh, we do know that that if you take those people and investigate them that there are going to be a high percentage of abductees because abductees, uh, 
in, in the pre-polling work that we did, we asked abductees the same kinds of questions of the poll, and a lot of those questions are on my questionnaire, and they were answering yes in very, very, very high frequency, and non-abductees were answering yes in very, very low frequency. So one incidence of seeing a ghost or, or I had an out-of-body experience or something like that, uh, it doesn't necessarily indicate abduction material, but there are ways to getting at it. And ultimately, and in the long run, the only way you can really tell for, for sure, I, I assume, is, uh, is through investigation. And, and each person must be investigated. It seems like it's almost unfair that that's the way it's supposed to be. But, but in fact, that, that's, that's probably the best way is just to go ahead and investigate it. And I've had people who turn out not to be abductees uh, who will feel, get through my filtering system every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one thing to be pointed out is that this is not a question, an area in which you find hoaxes, uh, just to start with. Uh, where we get hoaxes, of course, are with uh, things like UFO photographs and crop circles and so on, where somebody is not necessarily standing behind the photograph with a crop circle. They can just uh, send something to the newspaper or, or make a phone call or something, and they don't have to commit themselves to uh, acting in untruths and so forth. In this case, we don't really get that because these people are coming in and they're nervous, they're upset, and one of the first things I try to find out is whether they're leading a kind of a, a stable, productive life or not. Uh, this is crucial because, first of all, the one area where we have a, a definite gray area, so to speak, are, uh, is the area that involves people who are mentally ill. And uh, we have to, of course, eliminate that, that group of people who seem to be rocky enough. And even though they might be real abductees in many cases, I've dealt with uh, a number of people who uh, were a little on the rocky side, but who seem to have had real experiences. But that's a group where uh, I don't, not being a, a, a therapist, uh, I don't uh, work with those people. I pass them on to therapists who, will, who would not look down on the idea of an abduction if it might have actually been hap- uh, reported by that person. That's the only real area. Uh, wannabe types uh, are pretty obvious at the beginning. Uh, that they're looking for uh, fame and glory and wealth and all the things that don't happen when you report abductions. As a matter of fact, the opposite. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I think that those uh, questions, uh, so many of these things are, are really kind of self-described situations that you don't have to uh, worry to death. You, you just uh, decline to work with the person. And I always point out that just curiosity is not enough. I well, want to know that there's some problem that they're, they're dealing with personally, which has been, to some extent, not necessarily caused but made worse by abduction experiences. And with that, thinking that I that the experience of looking into it is going to be helpful to them. Well, Bud, I'm curious then to know what you feel about the uh, case of Jim Sparks, who we had on the show, and I think Gene and I both feel pretty comfortable saying that he's making a story up. Uh, the way that we questioned him, the way that we uh, we interviewed him, the way that he responded to some of our questions made it, I think, pretty clear to both of us that, indeed, uh, he had taken a bunch of different stories that he read around this topic and seemed to have constructed a story out of it of experiences that went on over time, and they really touched upon all sorts of uh, uh, elements that are common to a lot of these stories. And 
And now he's trying to get $75 an hour to give people phone consultations on their abduction experiences. Um, we found him to be uh, not very credible at all. I'm wondering if either of you gentlemen have worked with Jim or are aware of his case. But well, I, I worked with him very briefly at the very outset. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, this is before the grandiosity set in. When I was working with him, uh, just you know, very briefly, uh, there were many things that uh, seemed legitimate to me. I always tell people, uh, I can't t- say, yes, you have had this experience or no, you haven't, because uh, I wasn't there and I can't be when it happened and I can't be inside your head. I said, you're the only one who really knows that and will be able to uh, make a judgment call, you yourself, uh, not I as an outsider. But what I think happened with uh, Jim Sparks, uh, which has happened with others too, is that the, the issues of, uh, of ego and uh, a sort of messianic spirit and so forth begins to set in with some people, and uh, the uh, whole tale begins to get swollen, so to speak, uh, down to the point of maybe charging $75 an hour or whatever. Um, this has happened, I think, in, in a number of cases, and I think uh, th- there, are, there are some cases which I would rather not mention where, uh, especially if a number of books are written about the same particular uh, abductee, that abductee is under pressure to uh, remember things, quote-unquote, that they hadn't told about in the earlier books. And so if that particular path is taken, the path to fame and fortune and uh, and becoming a small-time messiah, I think that's all too human. It's, it's extremely unfortunate, but it does happen from time to time. But thank God it's as rare as it is. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We're talking to Bud Hopkins and Dr. David M. Jacobs. This is an abduction square table because we have four participants. Now, one of the things that occurred to me, which is something you alluded to there with Jim Sparks, is that people who have paranormal experiences may have the genuine experience, whatever it is. They have something happen to them that's really, really weird. And they get their 15 minutes of fame, then suddenly... You know, they decide they need 30 minutes of fame or they get followers and the followers say, well, what happened next? And maybe nothing happens next. So they are encouraged or maybe peer pressure forces them to develop more cases. Now, either of you have further comments, Dr. Jacobs? 
Well, you know, this does happen. It happens in a, in a lot of different areas of UFO research, and uh, and and it's sort of been a, a problem with UFO research uh, since the since the beginning. Uh, and we've been plagued with these kinds of people uh, over the decades. I shouldn't say plagued, but there's always a few around who who stand above the others and grab attention and all that. With the abduction phenomenon, it, it really is 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 a rarity. I mean, it does happen once in a while, as Bud was saying, and. But, but it is it is a rarity. Um, the vast majority of people, uh, maybe 99.999% of them, uh, don't want their names known. They don't, they don't want to be in the press. They don't want to be on television. They know that when they come forward and talk about the abduction phenomenon as it happened to them, it's all downside. There's nothing to be gained from it for them. Their their work situation is imperiled. Their friends might think that they've they've gone around the bend. There's there's nothing that's good about this other than 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 the knowledge that they can gain about what what their life has been like and what's been happening to them. So uh, I know that on in the media I've used a, a sort of a group of people over and over and over again uh, who because of documentaries on television and all that. And it's gotten to the point where I'm afraid to ask them, and they do it because they're, they, you know, they do it for me basically. But I know that that it, it could wind up hurting them. People ridicule them afterwards and all that, or think that they're crazy. So as I said, it, it's it's not an area where, where where sincere people come forward because they're impelled uh, to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, gurus or, or or cult leaders or or, or something like that. But there are there are a few that will do that every once in a while, unfortunately. So this is a case of maybe some people think that by becoming an abductee, a contactee, whatever, this is going to enhance their well, yeah, their existence. You know, even to talk about it is 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 to blow it out of proportion. Even mm -hmm. for us to sit here and say, well, yes, there are some people doing that, and then have a discussion about them. It makes their numbers seem higher. I mean, we can count on the fingers of one hand, perhaps uh, all the hoaxes that, that we've we've looked at over the years are uncovered from other people. Uh, and uh, you know, it's so insignificant. It really isn't worthy. Of, what is significant is it is how is how insignificant it is. That's the significance. But let me let me ask you a follow up question about that, and because mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm just curious. I I know in 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 reading some of your work that you discussed that there are these symbols mm -hmm. that you feel are that you use as a control element mm -hmm. for knowing when certain cases are compelling. Now I know that Sparks in his book The Keepers put in there a number of symbols supposedly of an alien language that he was reportedly being taught. I'm curious. Did you see those symbols? No, I, I uh, haven't. I, I have his book somewhere. He sent me a copy, and I, I have not read it, and I don't remember. I'm going to have to go back and see what I can find. Uh, the the um, I have never published the symbols uh, for an obvious reason, but they come from about 45 different people, and they're uh, remarkably similar. In some cases, absolutely, virtually identical. So it, it's the kind of thing where anyone looking at them would say this this seems to constitute some kind of uh, range of communication of some sort and the fact that these are coming from 45 different people is is to me absolutely staggering it was staggering to me when these uh, symbols first uh, uh, somebody just mentioned i think it was uh, debbie 
Jordan, Debbie Cobble, and uh, who I wrote about in Witness, who said, you know, I remember seeing these symbols. She just volunteered it. And she wrote them out for me. And about a year later, somebody else in a similar way said, you know, I, I saw some symbols in there. Things looked like writing and so forth and drew them for me. And they were practically identical. Of course, this became very helpful to me, although many, many, many people uh, do not recall seeing symbols of any sort. And I can imagine that for, for lots and lots of reasons. Maybe they're, they're only in certain craft or certain places. Uh, people are abducted sometimes at night and they are nearsighted. They don't have glasses with them and uh, that kind of thing. So, um, and many people are just so concentrated on their own terror and, and wanting this to be over and to get out of it at, that they're not exactly scanning the surroundings uh, as objectively as they might. So um, even though I have only 44 sets of symbols uh, out of the many, many people I've worked with, uh, I've only asked a, a small percentage uh, the question, have they seen anything like this? And many times they say no. Something kind of occurs to me with regard to this abduction scene. If, and we're assuming motivations here that we can't possibly fathom, but if I came down here and I'm heading an alien fleet and I want to check the local population, DNA, etc., I don't need to kidnap a million people, a million entities, a million humans, a million whatever. I can get by with 50, 100 so the question being, if there are hundreds of thousands or millions of abduction cases around the world, why? Why would any Gene, race need all that? Gene, be before the answer, before David and, and, and Bud answer that, I was thinking that question, but from a slightly different uh, viewpoint. Well, why don't we do this, hit your viewpoint, and then let them answer both? Right. <laughs> right. Well, no, but it keys into what you're saying, which is that do... Based on what we know about human genetic studies of species on the on the planet Earth, because we do go out and we, for example, will tag creatures out in the wild and we'll follow them and we'll follow family lines. There are scientists doing this kind of work both in the ocean and on land. Based on what we know about that kind of genetic research, do the numbers that you gentlemen are suggesting are potentially the numbers of people who are being abducted, do those numbers correlate in any way with the kinds of studies that we do of a species to track its genetic lineage. Is there some kind of a, of a correlation there that is useful for us, for us to understand what's going on? David. Well, I think what you're, what you're, you're doing is, is you are kind of assuming an experimental model that this is a learning situation, that they're following a lineage to to find out information, that uh, they're studying people and so forth. And and uh, that is a model I think that all you all abduction researchers kind of first latched onto. I know I, I did. Right. And um, and I for me uh, uh, by the mid 1990s that model uh, didn't hold much anymore. And I I then began to view this more as a program and uh, and and the experimental model. I, I just didn't feel I uh, had the evidence to support it for. And that of course is one of the reasons. 
But it was also because, I mean, one of the reasons that you mentioned, which is how many people do you actually need, but uh, also from what people were just describing, it, it just didn't seem like an experiment or, or a learning situation. Now, of course, that model is based to a large extent on the first case we had, which was the Barney and Betty, Betty Hill case, first case in the United States that came to, to light, that is to say. And it seemed to make sense the way we thought about it in the 60s and 70s and, and, and even into the 90s, that if visitors from another world were, were coming here, they would be interested in the flora and fauna. And there were reports which seemed to suggest that interest uh, that, that were not a human experimentation. They were occupant sighting reports that they would pick up people and and, you know, and cut them open and see what's what's going on in there or whatever it is that they do. And and it, it all seemed to make sense. But but for me in my research, uh, eventually uh, the preponderance of the evidence moved away from the experimental model and more to the program. I agree uh, completely with this, David. And uh, one, one thing to to consider uh, about your question, David, the, the um, mm-hmm. analogy with uh, work that's being done here. Uh, right. When we're working on uh, polar bears or something and and tranquilizing them, tagging them and all that, uh, we know exactly what we're looking for. You know, there's certain qualities or physical components or behavioral traits or whatnot, and uh, we know what we're, we're aiming for. And I would guess that essentially the zoologists who are doing this kind of work have a sort of a clipboard and a, and a few things that they have to check on with each one of their specimens that they're contacting. But when it gets to human beings who are infinitely more complex, intellectually, emotionally, and every other possible way, there may be aspects to our makeup that require larger samples uh, just in an information-gathering way. I mean, it's possible. We don't really know. I think to work downscale and, and uh, use uh, amoeba as our <laughs> standard of investigation uh, as a subject uh, doesn't work when it comes to the complexity of, of humans. So I'm not sure exactly whether we can outrule that entirely, that that large numbers seem to be uh, uh, just not a matter of, of information gathering or, or study. That may be a component to the whole thing, but it doesn't seem to be sufficient to explain the huge numbers. Uh, I think the basic problem is that we don't know, once we get into the the whole scenario of these uh, reproductive cycles and in, in producing uh, what seem to be genetically altered inf- infants, children, uh, that contain both human and alien characteristics. Once you get into that, though, that pushes the whole thing far more towards a programmatic business than it does an investigating business or there's accumulating e- information. There's even a larger question is, is it really as we interpret some sort of alien style phenomenon or are they just interpreting this in a way that meets our current standards being that we're in a science fiction culture we have star trek we have star wars therefore if we're being abducted by anything any particular force it has to be aliens we're interpreting that maybe 2,000 years ago, we were being abducted by the gods or the devils. You get my picture? Well, I, I don't think there's any real way to answer uh, a, a conundrum, just as you've <laughs> stated. If what is happening to people is different, 
at its heart than what these people are describing and remembering. And if everything looks different and has a different source and a different intention than what seems to be self-evident, well, yes, and then anything could, can happen. Uh, I think one of the remarks I've always loved to quote uh, the late Scott Rogo once said, unfortunately, he said, I don't believe that UFO occupants are extraterrestrial in nature because they're not doing what extraterrestrials would do. <laughs> now, <laughs> that's the greatest uh, shooting oneself in the foot or in the mouth or whatever uh, kind of statement one can imagine. Oh. Uh, once you open the door on the idea of the alien nature of what this is. Alien is just a, a, a negative definition of what something isn't. Right. Uh, it doesn't say what something is, and therefore uh, I find it a very comfortable term to use, that this is an alien phenomenon, but I don't necessarily uh, cling to the terms extraterrestrial because uh, they're, they're, our, our basic anthropomorphic idea of extraterrestrials is so uh, confused right now. Quick question. Um, in the research that, both you, that you've both done, there are uh, a number of elements that are consistent in what you feel are legitimate abduction scenarios. What about the elements that aren't consistent? What what can you derive from the things that are that are very different about these different cases? Or has there been any insight you've been able to glean based on not what's common, but what's different? Do you see what I'm asking, David? Right. Well, it's the commonalities that are that are the critical events, and uh, and UFO research and abduction research is, is ultimately a search for patterns. Uh, and if somebody says something to me that I have never heard before, that's really unique. And I haven't worked with this person for a period of years and years. I know the person mm -hmm. extremely well, and and all that. Uh, even then, what I do is I put it on the back burner, and I wait for uh, a testimony that that is the same or or similar to it. Uh, and, and hopefully even even not just one more person, but two or three or more people will right. say the same thing before it becomes, it pushes me into using it as evidence. It's just to hear something that's totally unique and you've never heard before, it, it does not a pattern make, and so it's very difficult to use that kind of that kind of material. It also has to do, of course, with how the person is remembering it. And I know that, that some people remember abduction events just outright, and they're, and they're pretty accurate in their memories. But, but I've learned that, that far more people remember only bits and pieces of abduction events, and, and they're not very accurate. And they, they can throw in all sorts of other you know, private uh, imagery from their own minds uh, into it, and, and you get sort of a... Uh, a wide variety of experiences that people describe, and 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 that's a that's a, an area you have to be very very careful about. Even though people think that 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 conscious memories are sometimes better than are always better rather than than, than memories derived through the help of hypnosis. So, uh, but you have to be careful with memories of all sorts, and uh, and the odd memory that is not verified by other people is is just isn't going isn't going to make a, a a great impression on me. Well, I understand it would make a great impression, but at the same time, I would imagine that if you're looking at a, a situation that you're trying to sort of define boundaries for, where you, you can say, okay, there are certain things that are common, but then the things that are different, what potential outer boundary do they boundary do, do, do they define? And let me, I guess I rephrase the question just a little bit, which is maybe we'll have to wait till, for the next hour to get the answer to this, but 
Um, is there a set of cases where there was, let's say, in two or three of the reports, something that normally might have seemed unique that gave you a new insight that you didn't have before? Maybe something, let's say, that's happened in the past three or four years. And I guess that that then begs a bigger question, which is, and maybe we should start with a bigger question, how have you seen this change over time? Has there been anything you've been able to determine in terms of the abduction phenomenon that has changed over time versus the parts that have remained consistent? Maybe that's a better question. And that's a good cliffhanger. So, ladies and gentlemen, David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins are going to ponder the answer, which we'll get on the other side of the Paracast. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back in the second hour of the Paracast with Dr. David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins, and we're going to jump back to my cliffhanger question. Gentlemen, in all the years you've been looking at this, there are certain elements that seem consistent that indicate to you that you're looking at a legitimate abduction case. But what have you seen change over the years? Have you plotted anything where this phenomenon has evolved, changed, presented patterns that maybe you didn't anticipate? Bud? Well, uh, this uh, goes to the very heart of uh, how my work unfolded. When I first got involved in this in the mid-70s, uh, we really knew about two abductions, the Betty Hill and the Pascagoula case. And at that point, it formed, they formed uh, a, a two-case pattern. The people consciously, the abductees consciously remembered seeing the UFO and actually seeing the beings inside the UFO and um, had a missing time experience connected with it. So I thought, naturally, that must be a, the basic pattern. But I began to run into cases where people felt that they had had an abduction experience and they couldn't remember any detail at all. Uh, they couldn't remember seeing a UFO or seeing an alien or anything like that. And I thought, well, that can't be a real thing. But we looked into them anyway. And what we found out, of course, was that it was uh, th these cases were just as legitimate as the um, two cases I just mentioned. And so suddenly I had to move my uh, the uh, edges, the borders of my phenomenon as I saw it into uh, a situation where, well, you didn't necessarily have to see a UFO or have to see aliens or remember details of being inside, which was also true of both cases. Maybe it was a very different thing, which meant the whole thing could be much more extensive. And then I staggered into the idea that there were screen memories, that some of these people weren't describing seeing aliens, but they saw something which was pleasant, but which still stared at them with uh, big black eyes like a deer, and uh, which, uh, when we looked into it further under hypnosis, turned out to be an alien. So I suddenly thought, you can't even trust what the conscious memory is of these people. And I discovered also that... 
our basic idea that these things were once in a lifetime, extremely rare uh, phenomena was a completely erroneous thing. And I had to change that boundary, too. And so what happened is the data each time was sort of forcing itself upon me to change what I considered to be the uh, basic abduction story, phenomenon, what uh, scenario. And that this is what's happened all the way through. Of course, when we got into issues of, of uh, the multiple abductions across a lifetime and family issues that it affected uh, members of the same family, all of these things which I had no idea of to start with with our uh, basic simple cases. And retroactively, I was able to go back and investigate some of these really early cases and uh, found that, in fact, they, when you looked into them, they had these qualities which had not, they had not bothered to report or hadn't thought important. Uh, so the, the whole thing was in a strange way, uh, defining its own boundaries. Uh, I was only the, the guy running around following the, the information I was getting and trying to make sense of it. So in a certain sense, I've been open all along to what is different. And of course, with, uh, even with the, uh, uh, my book witness, the issue of what we found about how an observed phenomenon, where they, if they wanted people to see it, how that would uh, be observed and uh, how many people it would affect inside the city, even though it's 3 a.m. and so forth. This was wholly new to me. Uh, I, I mean, I could go on with it, but I didn't, I never wrote any of the four books unless I had found some major kind of shift in what seemed to constitute the abduction phenomenon. But when you looked retroactively into earlier cases, those uh, those details were all present in those early ones. It just hadn't been reported. Yeah, I, I, I underwent the same sort of, uh, of change as well. As, as I began to research the phenomenon, and uh, I didn't start until, until in 1986, I found sort of what, what Bud had been finding, and I also began the same process that Bud was going through as well, which was uh, the phenomenon begins to push you into directions that, that you don't necessarily want to go or never even thought of before uh, through the preponderance of the evidence. People just say it over and over again, and you're required to just sort of move where the evidence leads you. And uh, in and. I think what I'm saying here, and, and this is important for, for everybody to understand, mm -hmm. is that when hypnosis is done correctly, it is the evidence that pushes the hypnotist investigator to different conclusions and different ideas as opposed to the investigator pushing the witness to tell the witness or the abductee uh, what, what he wants to hear. In other words, it doesn't, for Compton hypnotists, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you, you have to remain neutral, you have to go where the evidence leads you, and ultimately it, it leads you into, into places that, that you, you sometimes never even dreamed of, let alone uh, would use to lead somebody into. Well, that, of course, brings up a really critical issue, I think, with a lot of listeners, which is that uh, people have concerns, I, I suspect, about hypnosis. And I imagine both you gentlemen have been questioned about this over the years, uh, the validity of testimony that comes out under the state of hypnosis. How do you normally respond to that, Bud? Well, the uh, the questions are, uh, that are used, the arguments are used, uh, are 
usually raised by people who have never even sat in on a session. In other words, uh, people will say, oh, uh, Hopkins and, and Jacobs are leading the witnesses, but be unable to point to anything in the uh, uh, transcripts of these sessions and admit that they've never actually sat in on a session, uh, whereas, uh, for instance, I've had several different psychiatrists who were uh, neutral on the subject sitting on my sessions uh, just for this reason, uh, to get a kind of validation that that uh, leading isn't taking place. Uh, but as Dave just said, what is doing the leading is the uh, what's coming out of the mouths of the witnesses. And if those things are scattered and do not form patterns that are all over the place, then you can't trust them. But what if you're getting for the uh, 70th time the same exact descriptions of, well, let's say the symbols on the wall or what the how the thing unfolded and so forth? Then you're you're kind of stuck with with accepting it or handling it. But I've, I've written a long piece for uh, the book that, that David Jacobs has edited on uh, UFOs and the abduction phenomenon for it's a um, university press book. And I've tried to answer all of those things. I must say I've gotten kind of tired of going through the ritual again uh, because it's it's so easy for somebody who knows nothing about hypnosis or uh, its proper usage or have never sat in and never really bothered to read the transcripts anyway to just say, well, you can't trust hypnosis. It's, it's sort of like uh, being afraid of ghosts or something. I don't know what it is, but there's a, a kind of an innate kind of built-in fear of something that seems on the face of it very uh, exotic. But in actual fact, what I feel is very, very true is that questioning someone under hypnosis is very much like questioning somebody under uh, normal uh, recollection in the sense that in normal recollections, people make mistakes uh, of what they're recalling, uh, they they misremember something. That happens under hypnosis too. Uh, People can get caught up on details or evasions in normal uh, interviews and so forth, just as there can be evasions under hypnosis. So uh, I I minimize the differences between uh, hypnotic recall and and normal recall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to add also that that a large number of people who who have seen me are, are quite aware of the problems with hypnosis. They they know that that they can be led. They think, and uh, and they they don't want to be led. They, they're aware of it, and they they know that they might be might be picking stuff up in the media and then giving it back to me as if it happened to them. And and they don't want to do that. And they're aware of that too. And they'll voice their concerns even before we do our first session about that. And of course, obviously, Bud and I are are extremely aware of that situation. And. In other words, both the, the abductee and the investigator here are aware of the problem. But what a lot of abductees are not aware of is that we ask certain questions that might be misleading questions. We, we try to lead them into areas which we know are, are wrong or, or, or have never been reported before or something like that. And so there's a certain amount of controls that both of us have installed in our hypnosis and uh, just to see whether or not a person can be led in very subtle ways. And if they can, you have to be extremely, extremely careful. And you have to be careful, obviously, under any circumstances. But in general, people won't be led. You, you, you know, they, they'll just say, no, 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 it wasn't like that. It was like X, right? It wasn't Y, it was X. 
and uh, they'll they'll argue with me, and they'll 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 think to themselves, "Gee, that's the dumbest question I ever heard. I'm not going to answer that question," you know, or, or things like that. It, it's not like you're in some sort of way gone dreamland trance where where we're sort of uh, Svengali's and they're trilbies and and they're and they're just obeying every every you know command that we might give them, no matter how subtle it is. It, it really isn't like that. It's uh, most people are very self-censoring, particularly in the first session. Uh, most people uh, are uh, don't even want to say things that that they think are going to be too crazy sometimes, and uh, it, it takes a little bit of uh, a while, you know, to get them to be even loosen up to just to get them to be uh, uh, more complete in their description of, of, of events. Everybody is aware of the problems going in. Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net this is philip rodno you're listening to paracast with gene and dick one of the most informative shows out there so listen closely we're talking to dr david jacobs and bud hopkins ultimate ufo abduction square table. Now, something that was alluded to before, maybe we could mention again about it, and that is screen memories. We remember one thing that supposedly is a way of camouflaging for the abduction scenario, such as maybe seeing some kind of apparition. And David knows where I'm going with this. You see an apparition, but maybe it's not the apparition you're seeing. It is that how do you detect this? What is there about the so-called screen memory? Is it our subconscious trying to defend ourselves against what really happened or something planted there by an external force? Well, I'm going to let Bud take this first because he discovered the idea of screen memories. Well, I, I think that one of the most important things here uh, is the evidence that suggests this is imposed from the outside. And that's simply because in Three cases that I, uh, three different people I've worked with, uh, where there were two, two individuals involved in the abduction, each had described before we looked into the cases, what they had recalled seeing. And, um, for instance, in, in the first case, two young women were driving home from a party and, um, they were college students and they came upon six wrecked cars all piled up. Uh, in a deserted part of town, a suburb of Washington, D.C., and they were very frightened. The whole thing was very eerie, and they drove past all these cars which had their lights on, and there wasn't anybody around, nobody, no, nobody from the cars or witnesses or anything, even though it was a warehouse district. 
And when they got home, they called their parents. That they tell them all about it. They described it exactly the same way. The six car pileup. And they watched television. They read the papers to see something about it. There was nothing. And um, when they tried to call the police to find out what uh, what about this wreck, there was no evidence of any such thing. And, of course, ultimately it turned out not to be a six-car pileup. We can guess what it was. <laughs> I mean, what emerges a landed UFO. And um, the, uh, the the whole setting was an abduction. They don't remember stopping, but they sure stopped. I had a second case, which was virtually the same kind of situation, except on Long Island, where a man and his girlfriend came upon, again, a wrecked uh, a setting of wreck, wreckage, or, and there were big floodlights uh, illuminating the areas very Scary. And the next day, the man who was very friendly with the uh, with his, some of the people who worked in the in the rescue squad said, "Boy, I guess you guys were busy over on uh, Ventnor Avenue last night." And they said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "Oh, all the lights and the the wreck car, nothing happened." But he and his fellow passenger remembered it exactly the same way. So here we have, and, and there are other cases of this. We have, as far as I would say, absolute proof that this has been uh, uh, enforced on the outside, from the outside. So we don't know to what extent part of it isn't uh, a desire in the Freudian sense to soften a terrible image, and so one simply uh, remembers it differently. Let me yeah. add to that also that, that, that people do... Uh, um sort of remember bits and pieces that are distorted and and they will remember um, things I think that are important to their own life for example I've had people who remembered deceased relatives visiting them uh, and standing at the, by their couch or their bed or wherever they are and, and talking to them and and each time it's turned out not to be a deceased relative even though the people were were very invested in the idea that it was uh, one and and I, I and people also remember things in, in very sort of odd and unusual ways. And they'll remember uh, uh, traveling on the astral plane. I remember once somebody went, uh, told me that he traveled on the astral plane, and he was amazed to see how dirty his gutters were on top of his house. We did a session on that, of course, and and and. and I don't have any stake in traveling on the astral plane one way or the other, but it turns out, of course, that, that it wasn't the astral plane. So it's the, the mind can also take the images uh, that bleed through and fashion them into something that is within the realm of context of a normal world, so to speak, or their, their normal world, and and assume that it is uh, uh, whatever it is. And, and, of course, Bud, you discovered the... Uh, uh, you, know, you know, the woman who talked to a deer, and, and both of us have had experiences where people talk to every conceivable kind of animal imaginable as long as it has eyes. And, um, uh, it, and people swear that, that, that this happened, and then of course it, it, it didn't really. And whether that's imposed on the outside or, or they, or they didn't need help in doing that, I don't know. But, as Bud says, I've also had people who've seen car wrecks, and, and I, I had one where it was a wreck between a large truck and the car that was blocking the road. They had to slow down and stop for it, and that's all she remembered. You know, it was, it was so unusual that she couldn't remember anything else about it, which was what alerted us to it. And this is part of a whole series of events that had happened to her. And a lot well, of these things we assume are imposed from the outside. Well, well that sort of dovetails into, back into the religious question of the people you've both talked to and researched, how many of them end up either A, interpreting what's going on to them 
through a religious context, well, you know, angels spoke to me, or Jesus spoke to me. Instead of animals, how many put it into that context? And then do you think there's a possibility that people who are outside of this field having what are theoretically these religious experiences are actually having screen memories for what's not a religious experience? Bud. Well, that's, there are a whole lot of hypotheticals in your question. Right. Uh, most of this is almost impossible to uh, quantify. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we have one of the cases I had was, was the Virgin Mary appeared in a room. She was a Catholic girl and, and uh, about 17. And uh, but the strange thing was that the Virgin Mary came through the wall behind the dresser, which she couldn't figure out because the dresser was virtually up against the wall. And she had this st- these staring eyes. And uh, eventually, of course, the Virgin Mary t- turned out to be something different. But I think that there's just a, a wide, wide range of uh, screen memories, depending upon uh, perhaps the aliens having some sense of what imagery is present already in that person's mind, the mental banks. If they like animals, they maybe see an animal. I don't know. But uh, there's no way to quantify that. But I think that we have to it, – it just shows how much underbrush has to be uh, cut away before we can get to the uh, uh, sort of the nitty-gritty of what they seem to really be undergoing. Yeah, I, I think uh, to add to that also, uh, if anybody has a lot of money floating around, they want to conduct a survey, maybe we could find out how many people who are members of the clergy – have had unusual experiences as opposed to people who are not members of the clergy and uh, to see whether or not people have gone into the clergy because they might have had an experience which they interpreted as a religious visitation which was therefore in their minds absolute proof of their calling mm-hmm. and then gone into the to the, the, the mm-hmm. clergy as a result of that. Now, Dave, I'll let you attach your name to that research. I'll stay out of it. <laughs> well, it would be interesting. I mean, the, the answer might be, you know, no, no more or, or, or less than, than anybody else, but, uh, but it would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's go right to that nitty-gritty then, because uh, I think we're, that's sort of where hopefully any productive conversation on this topic would lead us. What's the, Dave, I know that uh, you and I talked a little bit before we started doing the show, and, and you sort of told me, indicated to me, alluded to that uh, there have been some, some perhaps new revelations in the last three, four years that you've had about this. And, and I know that uh, you and Bud talk about this stuff to each other. And so I'm wondering if you'd give us a sort of an insight into that discussion that you guys have that maybe you don't normally have with people from the outside looking in. Um, what things have come up recently that you feel are noteworthy or that might move us towards that nitty-gritty? Well, first of all, the discussions that Bud and, Bud and I have take uh, uh, basically one form. I make the wild claims, and he's the voice of reason. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. <laughs> we thought it would be the reverse. <laughs> well... Starting in 2003, uh, I stumbled upon a case that I could not make head nor tail of it. It had to do with, with what Bud had discovered back in the, in the early 80s, and that was uh, the reproductive aspects of the abduction phenomenon and the making of these uh, hybrid or transgenic children who, uh, who look sort of like crosses between humans and aliens. 
although some look quite alien and others look quite human. What we've seen is we've seen them, uh, people have described them as uh, toddlers, and, uh, and this is, of course, uh, the case, uh, but in, in, in intruders, and, uh, and we've seen them uh, older as well, and, uh, and we've seen them as uh, you know, young, younger kids and, and adolescents and, and young adults and uh, sort of a little bit older adults into their 40s, I think. And then in my, in my research, uh, dropping off drastically into old age. And I wrote about this fairly extensively in The Threat and, and the relationship that, that these hybrid beings had with abductees, which I had begun to concentrate on uh, quite a bit. And starting in 2003, I began to hear of hybrid behavior which I hadn't heard before, and uh, and I even went to uh, one of Bud's conferences, uh, it's Intruders Foundation conference in New York City, a symposium, and then I, and I gave a little talk about about it and and, and all that, and I, I really I didn't have enough evidence. I, I was I was unsure of what I was seeing and, and what what was happening, but it was basically a person who was saying that he was having a relationship with an adult hybrid apart from being on a UFO or being brought to a UFO or brought back from a UFO where all these procedures are administered. Uh, and it was more like a friend. And he would meet this friend in, in various odd places here, there, and everywhere. And he had a whole sort of life involved with this friend. And I didn't know what to make of that. And you, I just put it on the back burner waiting for other people to say the same thing. And it wasn't very long before other people began to say the same thing. And so my research in the past six years has been primarily on 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 these hybrids who have uh, who have a relationship with people outside of the bounds of a UFO or even the abduction phenomenon as we know it, and therefore it has expanded the boundaries of of the concept of abduction uh, because they're still basically under control uh, by the hybrid no matter where they are. So. That's that's sort of what where I've been at and 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 what I've been researching and and the programmatic the program aspects of this as opposed to programmatic uh, in terms of what does this all mean and and where is this leading and and uh, and should we run for the hills or not? Well, it comes up with a scenario of people being possessed by alien beings and doing their bidding, as you see in science fiction movies. It almost reads like that just hearing what you're saying. Well, you know, with science fiction movies or science fiction books or, or, or anything, if you look hard enough, you're going to find some sort of, of um, parallel type of uh, incident somewhere, somehow. You can always dig up in society, you know, uh, something similar in the past. And so you have to be very careful about how you use popular culture in these things. Uh, what I'm describing is, is really quite different. And the problem here is that there, these people are talking, giving scenarios which are, in which, for example, if they're with a hybrid and they're here on Earth, other people see the hybrid and, and may even inquire about it. So that's, that has happened before. Uh, and, and you can, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it's some sort of mystical or, or, or parallel dimension type of event. It's kind of a real time, real life event. Uh, and, you know, you're going to find parallels somewhere in popular culture with all these things, unfortunately. Sure. 
But but when one person after another, who are unaware of the other person's testimony, begins to say the same thing over and over again, and I, I'm forced to think, well, maybe this is happening. And there are some people I've known who are saying this, who I've known for 20 years, and that is not an exaggeration. But I've known for for over 20 years, and been have been doing. Uh, sessions with them, uh, you know, once in a while over these years, and then they begin to say the same thing, and they're unaware of other testimony. And and people who are new coming to me who don't know anything at all about the abduction phenomenon, who haven't followed it, don't know it, don't know about UFOs, never heard of me, for example, or Bud, and and they uh, uh, begin to say the same thing. It's even though it's anecdotal evidence uh, is still at its core, it's still very powerful evidence. And uh, and and as as a researcher, you know, you're, you're required to look at this as seriously as any other thing that you've heard in the abduction phenomenon. So the point is, is that there's enough there to study, and that's what I've been doing. There, I, I've, I've, I've had now, uh, I don't know how many instances I have of this, but, but I've been working, I've worked primarily with about eight people now who've ta said this, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it's incident after incident with them, and, uh, and it, it is a lot, and because uh, if I've discovered eight people who are having these experiences that have, n and I've never heard this before, and now they're all saying it. That means that there's probably eight million other people around the world, or, or or wherever they are, who are also having these experiences. Because there's no possibility that I have discovered this in my little corner of Pennsylvania only. Are you ready to order the official Paracast T-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Bud Hopkins and Dr. David Jacobs, and now, gritting his teeth, David Biedney will drill down. Oh, I, 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 I'm curious. Uh, what is the nature of the interactions between the people who are giving you this anecdotal evidence and these uh, these supposed hybrid creatures. What what is the what is the dynamic of the friendship? What kind of information is exchanged? Uh, may I add just one little note here? Yes. The question had been asked about the uh, movies like the Pod People and the uh, science fiction things, the taking over of the human by an alien mind or something. Uh, what's very interesting about this is it seems to have a symbiotic. Uh, connection that uh, the aliens are in a certain sense uh, asking for information about how to exist in this planet, how to drive a car, or make change, or uh, get food in a store from the abductees they're working with. In other words, it isn't all just some kind of evil uh, taking over someone's body. This is an odd sense of, of uh, the alien needing information and help from the human. 
Yeah, and that's that's essentially what what a lot of these relationships are like. They're they're sort of one-way conversations. Uh, in fact, I did a session with a woman who told me that uh, there was this. Uh, 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 she this was on board an object, not not in 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 the regular society. Uh, that they were walking down a hallway, and this hybrid, who was a human-looking hybrid, uh, asked her, "Why do people lock their doors?" And she said, "Well, you know, to to prevent other people from coming in at night." And and there was a conversation on that level about household, what happens, you know, why why a house would be secure, and uh, and that's kind of the questioning that 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 I hear quite often. Uh, um, how do you use a, a telephone? You know, and or uh, what is what's a television like, and 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 who gets to watch a television, and and how many hours can you watch a television, and and what are the what are the rules for watching television, and and very off the wall questions like that 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 I've learned is is, is sort of typical hybrid type of questions. And then the abductee answers, but it's not really a two-way situation where there's an exchange of information, where there's a give and take, a, a, an ebb and flow, like a normal conversation. It's more of a question and answer kind of conversation with the hybrids asking the questions and the abductees answering. Does that imply a sort of a classical dominant submissive dynamic? No, it implies that the abductee is under control and cannot be in control of his or her own wits and therefore take a two-by-four and hit the hybrid across the face with it. Hmm. Now, that brings up some interesting implications, of course, uh, because they're, you know, obviously, and I guess I don't, need, I, I don't need to point this out, but I will anyway, that if you have a... Uh, a species that has technology that seems to us to be almost magical, certainly more advanced than we are, one would almost say, well, why do they have to ask an abductee that question? Aren't there more efficient ways of gleaning that information? Well, if I can just dominate this conversation for another second or so. <laughs> Please. Uh, <laughs> we The fighting, ladies and gentlemen, will go on in the final section where Bud and David will go at each other <laughs> tooth and nail, nail and tooth, although they're separated about 200 miles apart. It, it, it'll be a steel cage match. No, no, no. No, but David, what, what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, the answer is that, that when you're dealing with hybrid children, and, and I remember Bud calling me up in the early 1980s and telling me that he had this most amazing case, that, that, that this woman was seeing, showing these weird-looking babies, and she had to put the baby to her breast and feed the baby, and I'm and I, and I thinking that this is the oddest thing I've ever heard in my life. From that point in the early 80s to now, um, it's grown into, into something that is, is worthy of, of, of a whole lot of books now, as far as I'm concerned. But, but the fact is, is that those babies are socialized in ways that, that we can only guess at. In other words, they're born on board a UFO, and, and seeing babies and seeing toddlers and so forth and, and, and young adolescents is, is really a standard event, it seems, with abduction event, with the reproductive program of the abduction phenomenon. It's not, it's not exotic. But those babies are, are raised in a way that is very, very, very divorced from human society. They don't have mothers or fathers. That they know of, uh, they don't know when, how old they are. For example, they don't, they don't have a birth date, and they don't have birthdays, 
their life is very, very different than ours. And so things that babies pick up just through osmosis, through watching their mother or their father, through being fed with a spoon, for example, are, are not the way that hybrid babies or hybrid children are treated. And so everything has to be learned. And the amount of things to be learned is almost infinite when it comes to the daily routine in life of human society. It may be not infinite when it comes to uh, larger issues like, well, you have to wear clothes because, because we do see them wearing clothes and all that, and they may have learned that. Uh, but the styling of the clothes that they have to learn, you know, in other words, the amount of information that we store in our brains is, is just, is, is beyond imagination. Uh, it's, beyond, it's beyond our own ability to, to, to collect information, it seems. It's just, it's just amazing. So when they ask these questions and when they learn about, and one of the key things that they learn about is relationships with other people, you know that, that, that yes, they have a large amount of knowledge about the society, but the infinite amount of knowledge that they have that they don't have still has to be asked on a one-to-one -one basis or can be asked on a one-to-one -one basis. And you get that uh, over and over again. And, you know, once again, if this, if this were a psychological phenomenon, we'd be getting these kinds of reports and they would be asking all sorts of things. They'd be asking, for example, Barack Obama, who is this guy? What is it? What does a president mean? And all that. But, but we, we don't get that kind of, of questioning. We get personal relationship questioning. We get questions about, um, what are wires for? Uh, I've had this several times, oddly enough, a fascination with electrical wires as, as hybrids are, seem to be for some reason or another fixated on that, uh, once in a while that is. And, uh, or, or questions about, um, here's a young boy saying, well, if he were to go to school here, uh, how would he treat the teacher? Would he treat the teacher, this is maybe a 10 year old kid, would he treat the teacher as his equal? Would he treat the teacher as an inferior? Or would he treat the teacher as, in a, as being in a superior position to him? And this has to be explained to the, to the child then. The interesting thing about that little episode was that treating the teacher as an inferior was an option that the 10-year-old presented to the abductee, uh, meaning that it was feasible. But um, uh, it, it, the, the kinds of uh, questions and, and the dialogue that takes place has been really unique and astonishing and mundane all at the same time. What, what do you think it tells us? Do you think it gives us any clue? Me again? Yeah. Yeah. But why don't you take this? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's your hot potato, Dave. <laughs> well, I mean, I know when I hear this, it's almost like I'm hearing a creature that's not particularly familiar with the notion of individuality asking about what the dynamics of individuality are. That's what I hear. Individuality is not a prized possession as is free will in, in the hybrid and alien society that I have looked at. Uh, free will is, uh, is, is not, not a major concept. Uh, it, it, it's not exactly a hive mentality, but it's close to it. It's working for the common good of everyone and not ever working for yourself. Is it uh, almost like a communist alien nation here? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, uh, even the communist states had a certain amount of individuality in it. And for example, people had names. But um, in, in the society that I've looked at, uh, people don't have names because it's a telepathic society. It's a, there's a lot of different... Uh, 
aspects of the society that are extremely different than human society. Uh, telepathy, of course, would be would be a major part of it. But let me answer that question in another way, and that is, um, in the 1990s, before I wrote the thread, and then I put this in, in in my book, the thread, I would get people who would say that they were that they were shown a scene which might be played out on a screen-like device on the wall or within their own mind's eye, and and the screen would have uh, a picture, for example, of a picnic, and this is one of the things that I wrote about. And it's a normal picnic with people playing ball and or, or kids playing ball and somebody at a grill and people talk, you know standing around and talking and this and that. And they'll hear in their minds, uh, can you tell the difference between us, meaning hybrids, and you, meaning humans? And the abductee will look at this and be puzzled by the question. And they'll say, no, what are you talking about? Everybody looks the same to me. There, There is no difference. What do you mean? You know? And they'll say, see, isn't that wonderful? Soon we will all be together. Soon everybody will be happy. And, you know, you hear one of those and then you just toss it. But when you begin to hear a number of them, you begin to think everything sort of makes sense from what Bud discovered with the babies and toddlers and, and feeding them and taking care of them and handling them and this and that, all the way through to adult hybrids and, and their, their role in the abduction phenomenon. And you get the sense that, and once again, enough people have said this now that I've gotten the sense that that ultimately what we're dealing with here is an integration program, in my opinion. A takeover? Uh, Resistance well, is futile? You know, I don't know if it's going to be that way. The problem here is is the discussions that, that I, I talked about just a few minutes ago is that they control the discussions and then they therefore they control the neurology of the discussion between the abductee and them which means that they control the neurology to a degree of the abductee, which puts them sort of on a different order of person than, than we are. I mean, I would like nothing better on earth than to be able to control somebody else's neurology. That would be I good. I could think of a few candidates. Right. And uh, unfortunately, I, I just can't do it. And uh, I can't even control the neurology of my cats, let alone anybody else. So <laughs> unfortunately, these, these people can do that. And this is we've had indication of this because there is an abduction phenomenon. Without that ability to control others from, the, from a few seconds or a few minutes before the abduction event happens to all the way through to the end of it, there would be no abduction phenomenon. It wouldn't happen. It has to be. And we see hybrids who are able to do this as well. And that's the difference. Uh, and abductees basically uh, are, are sort of the unwilling uh, uh, subjects in this who are, who, are, who are pressed into service to help them integrate into the society. And I know that sounds crazy, as does everything with the abduction phenomenon, of course. But uh, but that's that's the conclusion I, I've I've come to. Okay, so does that mean that they're walking amongst us? I'm being serious here. That some of the people Bud, we see are hybrids. Bud Hopkins, what do you think? You take this one, Bud. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it seems to me that uh, the evidence is is completely persuasive to me that uh, at least some of the time. Uh, some of these transgenic beings, hybrids or whatever, are actually wandering around amongst us. Uh, whether they're here all the time, whether they come and go, so to speak, uh, we don't really know. But um, certainly the numbers of incidents, which for me go back actually to the, uh, to the early 80s, uh, where people have encountered what seemed to be these uh, hybrid beings, uh, 
this seems to be so persuasive just as in terms of the sheer weight of the information. And if you go back even earlier, what's very interesting is some of the early so-called uh, Men in Black reports um, seem to be, in a certain sense, classic uh, hybrid reports. Uh, because of the odd looks and the odd behavior of these beings uh, who have interacted with abductees. The, the, uh, the main incident uh, in the state of Maine with uh, two young men who were abducted and uh, the, the um, doctor who was doing the hypnosis uh, got a phone call from two men who wanted to come and talk to him about what he was doing. And uh, these two men... Uh, he said, fine, and, and suddenly there was the door, but there was a knock on the door, and he walked over after it hung up the phone, and there these two weird beings were, uh, maybe three, I've forgotten. And they came in and sat down, and uh, there was something totally uncanny about the three of them. They knew a lot about the incident this uh, uh, the therapist was investigating, and um, he was getting totally spooked. I've forgotten exactly what his attitude was. That I think it, it, that was the last time he had anything to do with UFO subject, but when he when they left, he uh, had noticed that there was, there was no car outside. and see how they got there, and um, they walked out the door, and he shut the door, and then a second later opened it to see where they were, and just vanished. Uh, there was no place they could have vanished to. I mean, we have this is a, a case from the 1960s, a late case. So we have cases that are uh, suggestive. They were dumped into this uh, men in black phenomenon, but they're certainly subjective, uh, suggestive of uh, some of the hybrid behavior that we've recorded since then. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Dr. David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins, organized around abductions. We're talking now about hybrids. Okay, but this is getting kind of frightening. Seriously, are we being assimilated? <laughs> I'm serious. It sounds like it's almost funny, but... There isn't anything uh, about the whole phenomenon itself that I can, in which I can find any reason to be optimistic. I just don't see any optimism connected with it. If, if there's optimism that I feel, it's uh, my own uh, nature, perhaps, uh, to hope such uh, dire things are not uh, awaiting us. 
it's, of course, very hard to uh, get your mind around the idea of global warming and the, the really dire truths which seem to be right there in our face about what may be happening to the planet. But when you add this in, with its uh, sense of infiltration, its sense of, of control, which is the control is absolute with, uh, as a, an aspect of the abduction phenomenon, uh, as Dave said, uh, what is there to feel optimistic about? I, I mean, it, 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 there just isn't anything that could be cheerful. It's it's uh, it's it's not a pleasant thing to look at, and I actually stay somewhat away from this uh, subject of the hybrids, even though I wrote a lot about it in my last book, Insight Unseen. I find that perhaps more depressing than any of the rest of it, and uh, I would just prefer to do the uh, really brave thing and simply avert my eyes and not notice it uh, as a way of getting through my days. But a question about that. Uh, I read most of Sight Unseen, and there's one case in there that's really interesting and unusual, and I bring it up because I'd like you to just talk a little bit about it. This family that had this very enigmatic character living with them, a one Mr. Page, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, Mr. Page. It's a, Mr. It's a Page. Remarkable case, yeah. Uh, an amazing case. Now, when in researching that case, when you read about the dynamic between this, this Mr. Page character and the person who was at that time the little girl, Mm-hmm. It's the, 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 the little girl who um, has these very fond memories of him. I mean, it sounds like, it, for the most part, it was an extremely positive relationship. What kind of clue does that give you about this? I mean, is that is that case an anomaly, or are there other cases like that you've been able to find? It's very hard to answer that question clearly because uh, we haven't done much work in, in investigating it, uh, what I've done mostly is to uh, just do interviews with members of the family who had remembered Mr. Page being there living in the house for uh, a decade or so. And uh, I, we haven't done any hypnosis, really, on what his relationship was with this little girl. And yet there seems to be a, um, a connection between his uh, taking her off into the woods which her, uh, her mother did not have any problem with at all, and them coming back very late. And um, the the whole thing is somehow fixed in her mind as a very disturbing thing she doesn't want to look into. Mm. At the same time, she has these uh, positive feelings about him, but he doesn't fit anywhere in, in a wholehearted way. Uh, the alien aspect is present, but... Uh, there seems to be other kinds of things. He seems to be very involved in uh, arcana of varying sorts, and uh, he was much beloved by some members of the family, and other people thought he was uh, a really weird, spooky, frightening person, and so on. It's not yet really been investigated as well as it should have been, and it's partly because the young, the little girl, who's now a young woman, has not wanted to look into it. I wish I had more information on it, but uh, yeah. you see, that's the problem. When you do an investigation into this very uh, difficult personal emotional territory of the family, uh, you can't just say, well, I want to now do such and such. We're going to look into this today. Uh, you have to approach this very, very delicately to maintain, uh, you know, good relationships with the families and with the various people. And you realize that you're uh, uh, treading on, on very deeply contained 
uh, areas that, which might be quite frightening as well as quite nice too. Uh, but it's it's a very mixed bag that that particular case. Mm -hmm. It's a very compelling case. So so David. Ultimately, as you spend all of this time in researching this topic, do you share Bud's feeling that this is a this is a overwhelmingly depressing in many ways? I mean, do you think that what's going on is nefarious? Well, I, I'm going to disagree with Bud. Bud says that he is not very optimistic about this, and and I, however, am extremely pessimistic. Okay. So that <laughs> sounds like kind of a, a half full half empty concept right when i look into the future of this subject uh i you know once again i don't have any stake in this being wonderful and happy and beautiful and good and i, I would like it to be that way now I, I want them to be here to stop war and cure cancer that would be terrific and 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 maybe they can stuff my money my, my pockets with money i'll take that as well but the fact is that uh i've looked into this you know for for a long time now and then but much longer than I have and and both of us can look at this situation and say the future is dicey at best with this I, I uh, you have to remember that this is a, a global phenomenon that this is a clandestine phenomenon and it's it's secret because they don't want us to know what they're doing to us basically and mm -hmm. it's the bottom line and it's done for their own agenda and not for ours, in spite of what all sorts of people want to think. Does the and, government know about this, what's going well, on? Well, this we might have a legitimate th disagreement on, because I, I'm one of the few researchers who doesn't see the evidence as very strong for the government knowing, although I understand that the government should know and, they, and that they must know and all that. But And, and I hope they do know, and, I, and if they do know, if they're covering it up, I'm fine with that. That's okay as long as they know about it and are studying it. But the evidence for me has not been persuasive that they do know. And, I, and apart from that, the scientific and academic community is, is more hostile now to the subject than I have ever seen it in all the years that I've been doing UFO and abduction research, which goes back to the mid-60s. I have never seen it as, as aggressively hostile to the subject of UFOs and especially abductions in my life. And so I, I'm very pessimistic about um, authorities of any sort, governmental or academic or scientific, uh, looking into this subject uh, anytime soon. But that's just me. You just think it's too poisonous, basically. Well, the, the unlikelihood of it happening is very high and, and, and there are, and, and you have to sort of fight your way through a whole popular culture that is heaped on top of the abduction phenomenon in particular to get to the core of what it's all about. And, you know, it, there is a learning curve and you have to separate the wheat from the chaff and the signal from the noise. And I think that most scientists just throw up their hands and say, no, not for me. It's probably not worth it, even if I try, because the unlikelihood and the implausibility of what, what Bud and I are talking about actually is happening is, is extremely small. But you have a memoir coming out soon. Yes, I do. Uh-huh. So and, and do you feel in that memoir, I guess at the end of this, do you feel like the time you've spent on this is time well spent, or do you regret it? Oh, no, I, I have no regrets at the time I've spent, just for the, the simple reason that, as of course, a corollary to what I've learned along the way mm -hmm. uh, and have been able to publish so other people can follow and understand, uh, is the fact that there is this 
aspect of de facto therapy. And it's one of the reasons the whole subject is depressing uh, to anybody who spends any time with it is because we see so much pain in the lives of people who have been going through these abduction experiences. And uh, the one thing that gives you some sort of personal hope and sense of accomplishment is that you can see that you have actually done good things in in very many people's lives. Uh, I mean, this is a subject which in, I have several cases where uh, people have apparently committed suicides essentially as a result of, of just a tremendous terror and depression. That's a whole complicated issue which needs support, but at any rate, we know that people are suffering from from fear, from self-doubts, from uh, the basic thing that no one believes them and they can hardly bring themselves to believe themselves and so forth. So uh, the amount of good one can do in this area is, I think, enormous. And I think that uh, Dave and I and a number of other people have been, without any doubt, very helpful to a lot of human beings, and that's made the whole thing worthwhile. When do you expect this book to be out? Uh, the book is called uh, Art, Life, and UFOs, and it's coming out in July, and it'll be available uh, in uh, Amazon and bookstores and so forth. But it's uh, it's a, a whole tr coast through my life from uh, uh, early beginnings in Wheeling, West Virginia, and a very reactionary culture to um, becoming an artist and uh, the adventures in New York City in the 1950s with the abstract expressionists and then into the UFO subject and the whole thing, the themes of uh, aspects of my life and the art I produced in the art world I've lived in and the UFO world, uh, those themes are have been intertwined and interlocked and uh, uh, I'm kind of pleased with the book. I think it's going to be very good. We look forward to it. Where can our listeners learn more about the things that you do? We have a, a website, intrudersfoundation.org. And, and we'll be doing a, a seminar here in New York. There'll be more information about it at the end of June. Uh, so they can find out those things there, but uh, they can find out more about me and the book, which I hope also has some, uh, a few um, perhaps sunnier splotches in its rather than uh, <laughs> something as depressing as this subject can get to be. Dr. Jacobs, what are you working on these days? Well, I'm, I'm trying to put together a, a narrative about hybrid integration into the society. And, uh, I don't know if this is the time to do it or not. Uh, the publishing industry is, uh, uh, is, is not doing very well these days. And, uh, but, but I need to get some of the material that I found since 2003 down on, on, in print in some way. And, uh, and I have a couple of other books in the back of my brain as well. But uh, but that's sort of what I what I've been uh, looking at, and uh, I, I, right now I'm sort of swimming in information. I, it's 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 overwhelming, and even sifting through it is extremely difficult and time consuming. Fast question, before we go: If there are hybrids out there, is there a way to recognize them, or is it going to be a case of people looking at other people in a strange way, hoping they'll act alien? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a really good question and it's phrased properly too. And I, I do get a lot of people who write to me saying, well, you know, uh, my boyfriend is an alien or a hybrid or whatever it is. And, 
and basically, if they know that the person is a hybrid, it's almost invariably true that they're not hybrids. Uh, <laughs> hybrids don't make friends a lot. They're, they're, it's a, it's a, right now, from what I can tell, and my knowledge obviously is incomplete, but they, they don't go around broadcasting that they're hybrids or that they have special powers or, or anything like that. So if you think that, 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 and people write me and they say that they're a hybrid too, and in, and the answer almost invariably is no, that's just not the way it works. So if you think you know hybrids, you probably don't. If, however, you, you know, you're, you're walking on the street, uh, as Biden indicated, and you see, and you, you see a normal looking human, it is within the realm of possibility, and I hate to even hear myself saying this, that that person, it's possible that person could in fact be a hybrid, and you don't even know it. Where can our listeners get a hold of you if they want to check out more of your well, stuff? Well, my website is, is uh, ufoabduction.com. That's just uh, ufoabduction, no S on the end of that. That's a whole other world. And anybody can go there and sort of uh, read some of the stuff that I've written and all that. All right. That sounds like something we're all going to want to check out. David, my friend, this has been some session with Dr. Jacobs and Bud Hopkins. Putting these people in a virtual room, what a wonderful idea. I want to thank both Dr. Jacobs and uh, Bud Hopkins for coming on the show and having this uh, square table discussion with us. We really appreciated this. It doesn't mean these men are squares. They're hip to what's going on. Bud is very hip. <laughs> the deal. Bud is hip in ways that you and I can will never be, Gene. That's the deal. Such a deal. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.